In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. We thank thee, O Lord, that thou hast guided us here to this day. Help us and strengthen us to walk in thy commandments, so that living virtuously, we may be a model to others, and we may walk in the steps toward thy kingdom. Strengthen us and guide us so that with one voice and with one heart we may magnify and glorify thine all honorable and majestic name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, now and ever and unto ages of ages. Amen. So, in our services that we have every week, we repeat a lot of things. And we also get a lot of new hymnology every single week. There's a temptation for us to go by week by week and to listen to words, to sing words, and to do it without thinking too much about what we're actually saying and what we're doing. And that's a temptation for us because we do do it week after week after week. The hymns and the words to these hymns and the words that we use in the services are very powerful and they have a lot of meaning. And not only, not only does it help us pray and help us throw to God all that is going on in our life, but it also helps us define how we see life and how we go throughout the day. As we talked about, a little bit about last week. <laughs> is it killed? So, yeah, there's a little bug crawling around somewhere over there. A big bug. All right, killed. Okay. <laughs> And that finishes Father Philip's series on death. Right. <laughs> <clears throat> so, nothing to see here. Yeah, what a man, what a man. That's why the advantages of here. So, so in, in the services, especially when we talk about the resurrection, not only if we really listen to the words we hear, exalt, rejoice, be glad, words that are full of meaning, words that so often we'll sing, rejoice and be glad. No, rejoice and be glad. So it's helpful for us to focus on these words and really do what they're telling us to do. We rejoice, we exalt, not just because this is what it tells us to do on Sunday morning, but because Christ is risen and desires for us to be saved, desires for us to be one with him. And so we rejoice in this, we exalt in this, and we live in this reality. The words help us remember the reality that we live in because so much of all, I mean, most of what we experience outside of here in life and our jobs and work and school is counter to what we experience in church and what these words are driving home. So we rejoice in this, we exalt, and we have these words and we have these hymns that help us live in this reality and 
help us worship God and also live our lives as Christians, which means becoming citizens of the kingdom. That's what our life's about here on earth. So these hymns help us do that. Um, the last thing I will say about that is, I mean, we sing the great doxology every Sunday. We sing, in thy light shall we see light. Something we can so easily skip over, but it's so beautiful, and it's really the words help us so that in thy light we shall see light. With the words that we're singing, we live the reality that those words bring to us. In thy light shall we see life. Shall we see our life? That's what the hymnology helps us do in church. Okay, so notes and melodies. We first, as we said last week, first see notes written down in the ninth century. And these notes that make up these chants are built out of these twists and turns that are very common melodies that people are hearing uh, in that day. We said it, a lot of it does come from the Greek culture of that time in Constantinople. And so we compose these chants by putting together little melodies, not so much individual notes, because there are already melodies in uh, the communal memory. There are already these melodies that people know. And so by composing, we're putting together melodies. Um, so we even see that uh, in our chant today. Uh, even in, so what we just sang, we sang a tone eight today. After, glory, after the chanter sings glory to the Father, it was tone eight. And one of those kind of melodies that we find common uh, usually come with the word heaven, and it goes, Da, 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 da. I don't know if you've ever heard that before, but that's just like one of those melodies that are common. We all know it, and it's something that uh, we match to the words. So they match these little melodies to the words so that, that the hymn flows. It goes high when it goes to heaven, goes low when we talk about earth and our sin and our struggle. And so these little melodies match the words. So. <clears throat> Um, the word composing literally meant putting together melodies, little melodies. Okay. The, by the 8th century, we have eight tones. We see eight tones, east and west, codified by St. John of Damascus. We'll talk about how he codifies them in a second. But before we do that, we can talk a little bit about <coughs> the eight tones. Why do we have eight tones? Some people say it comes from 15 Greek kind of tones that were going on uh, around that period. And we kind of molded and fashioned them into eight tones. So one reason why there could be eight tones is this Pythagorean view of eight as the perfect number for music. Do, re, mi, fa, so, la, ti, do. There's just there's eight notes. There's just Eight is just a good number for music. Second reason is the eighth day. This theological idea of the eighth day is symbol of the age to come. In the age to come, we're unceasingly praising God with the angels. We're all one. And this is what we talked a little bit about last week, of kind of why we sing with one voice and one mind and why we sing, because it is a reflection of the heavenly worship that we see in the vision of Isaiah, that we see in Revelation. So 
that makes sense to me why we could, they could have hate. That's definitely a thing. The third reason, uh, Semitic people organized in cycles of 50 days, which is seven weeks plus an extra day. So we get eight. So this could be three reasons why we have the eight tones. We don't know for sure, but I think uh, I really like that second reason. <laughs> so we'll just say that. So St. John of Damascus codifies these eight tones in a book called the Octoikos. So the Octoikos, we'll talk a little bit more about it in, next week when we talk about the books that we use in the services. <coughs> the Octoikos is a book that is separated by tones. So you could say there's eight volumes. So the first volume would be tone one. And it would have hymns for the Vespers and the Matin services for, Monday, for Sunday through Saturday. All that you would sing in tone one. Because every week we have a tone of the week. So for instance, this week is tone, we're singing tone eight. So we would go in the Octoe Coast for tone eight to get those hymns. So St. John of Damascus organizes an eight volume book to help us um, uh, codify the tones. Now, what, are, what hymns are we singing in this big book? So for each day, there is a commemoration for the day. So for instance, today um, would technically be Thursday because we're singing Vespers um, Wednesday night and we always start the day with Vespers. In fact, in Genesis, if you look, it says the evening and the morning, the first day. It starts with the evening. So we start with Vespers. So technically, we just began the, the, new, the new day. So we would be singing some hymns that have to do with the apostles uh, and St. Nicholas. However, we didn't do that today because we commemorated two big saints, so that overthrew the Octobicos. We'll talk more about that last week. Just That's really confusing. But the important point is there are hymns for every single day of the week. And those, commemorate, and those hymns have to do with on Sunday, the resurrection, Monday, the angels, Tuesday, St. John the Baptist, and Wednesday, the cross, Judas' betrayal, Thursday, the apostles and St. Nicholas, Friday, the cross and death of Christ, and, Saint, and Saturday, all saints and departed. So there's hymns in eight tones for each one of those days. So that's a lot. It's a lot of hymnography, and that is a lot that St. John Damascus did. Damascus did. So there it is. Yes, Mitch. So St. John of Damascus, he, he composed all of the words and everything in addition to the... Yeah, so not, so most of the words. There are some other hymnographers that did certain parts. Uh, I know some of the resurrectional canons, there are certain hymnographers that also kind of chipped in. But the majority of the work is St. John of Damascus. We don't think he really composed music for all of this, but the word-wise, he did a lot of it. And that's not all he did. He did a lot more, too. He wrote a lot of canons, which we'll talk about uh, next week. So <clears throat> the eight tones are based on three different scales. There is the enharmonic scale, the chromatic scale, 
and the diatonic scale. That is, doesn't really make any sense for right now, but the enharmonic scale is tone three and tone seven. So the first four tones all have matching tones. So the matching tone for tone one is tone five. The matching tone for tone two is tone six. So as we can see, the enharmonic is tone three and tone seven. They're both, they're kind of matching tones, so they have the same scale. So <coughs> chromatic is tone two and tone six, and diatonic one and five, four and eight. So to give you a, just a little preview or an example of what that looks like, we're going to talk more about this in a second. But if I were to do the, the diatonic scale, that sounds the most Western. That is, makes the most sense to the Western ear. And it's pretty much the exact same scale as you would see on uh, a, just a regular piece of uh, music. So if this was, um, uh, there was no key signature or anything, and this was just a scale, the diatonic sounds like this. That's how the diatonic would sound. The chromatic sounds a little bit more Middle Eastern. And the bass note is not ni. The bass note is actually pa. So it would sound like this. That's that scale. So it's very Middle Eastern sounding. So when we do the chromatic scale, a lot of times we will sing it when we're talking about Christ's death and his burial. And we sing it when we're talking about some more um, sorrowful hymnology. Um, so those are kind of the big differences. Diatonic, very much basic. The chromatic is very much more flats and sharps, and it's very much more Middle Eastern sounding. So, however, in the early church, it probably did not sound exactly like that because chant went through different <coughs> developmental phases. So, uh, many of the chanters had a lot of these melodies memorized. And so, like we said, in the ninth century, we start to see these manuscripts. Um, and these manuscripts would not look anything like what we have in Western notation. If you pull out your piece of paper that has the words and these weird squiggly lines all over it. This is today what we call Byzantine notation. It's what they, it's relatively close to what they would have used back then. By relatively, I mean there would have been these line symbols and there would have been a little symbol above the first word, which would tell you what note to start on. So it would tell you, in this case, that you would start on the. So that would be like so in the Western scale, the do, re, mi, fa, so, la, ti, do. So this is what, close to what it would have looked like back then. It looks really confusing, and it is very confusing. 
so confusing that in the ancient world, you had to study for seven years before you could really chant. And a lot of that would have also just been memorizing these melodies and understanding how to read these manuscripts. So um, these symbols work kind of like a mathematical game. They tell you, instead of giving you an absolute pitch, so instead of telling you that there is a, instead of giving you a note on the scale, it's going to tell you, you can choose, okay, let me back up. So, it's the first, uh, you can, in Byzantine notation, you can choose any note for any one of these. I can say that knee is knee, or I could say, oh, I want knee to be knee. I can choose any note that I want to choose. And then I will just, if I choose knee, I would say knee, knee. If I want to go knee, then I could start really low. You can choose any note that you want, pretty much. So this is telling you, you, pick, you kind of pick a note that you want to be for the. So once you choose that note, there is a symbol under it, which is the line and the other symbols there tell you how much to go up or to go down. So it will tell you <laughs> from V, you need to jump up two, two notes. So your next note you would sing is zo, and then it might tell you to come down three notes, and then it would tell you to come up five more notes, and then do a flutter, and then it might tell you to stay on the same note for a little bit. So this is really kind of like a math game. It's not telling you notes on the scale, but it's telling you how far to jump up or how far to go down. Or So if you mess up, Oh, God forbid you mess up, because then you have to find the note again, <laughs> the previous note, and then figure out where you were, and then, because it's not like a scale where you can just say, oh, no, I just, I can, I know what that note sounds like. No, I'm lost in this game of, like, <laughs> however, a lot of times they do help you, and they will put, um, if you can see, there's other little small symbols, and that kind of gives you a reminder of where you should be at. So there's little markers to help. Kind of remind you. So at this you. point, I would sing pie if I got <laughs> Yes, you would sing. You would sing pie, and then you would get some pie. So that's how they would have chanted in the ancient world, and they had a, and they still do it today, uh, but not as many of us can do Byzantine notation. But um, it, yeah. Takes a long, it takes a long time to learn and to master because there are, um, okay, they, there's only about 15 symbols now, but uh, back in the day, <laughs> there was like 50. So you had to know all the symbols too and how much to go up and go down. And not only that, but I also would tell you how long to hold the note for or if you needed to do a little flutter. So you have to do like three things at one time also. So you're multitasking. So there's a lot going on. So there were four periods of Byzantine chant where the notes and the symbols evolved. So from 950 to 1177, um, there were a few signs. And we're not sure of their function. Um, this is a book we'll talk about next week, too, the Menaean forms. 
So uh, after that, there's 40 signs with clear functions that we can, it looks like, pretty much understand, although I have no idea what those 40 functions are. And then from 1670 to 1814, there's a rewriting of the more ancient melodies, kind of similar to the melodies that we would know and love today. And then in 1814, uh, to the present, there was a certain man named Chrysanthos of Maditos who reformed the notes and reformed the scale which we have today, which is a lot easier. So, so yeah. Sir, did, did he do that? Did he use the Western notation or did he reform and, and, and he re recreate a new symbol for the Byzantine notation? For the Byzantine notation. So he's not really. He's reforming the symbols for the Byzantine notation. But he also helps us with Western notation because he creates this to help us transfer to the Western do, re, mi, fa, sol, la, ti, do. Mm -hmm. So he helps us in this aspect. So that way, we can transfer this to a piece of music. So we can say, this will be ni, because usually in our music, this is always ni. So it's not like you really choose. You pretty much know this is ni. Pa, vu, ga, li, ke, zo, ni. So this Chrysanthos of Maditos helped us a great deal. But he was exiled because the patriarch did not like that he had taken this Eastern Byzantine beauty and had <coughs> Westernized it in the sense that making it easier for you know the Western ear and for uh, those to be able to transfer and sing what is being sung in the Byzantine notation. So he's actually exiled, but in exile he's teaching and he's helping people chant, and people are chanting in ten months what it took ten years for people to master and to be really good at. So. I think news spread, and then he was no longer exiled, and he came back, and he kept teaching chant. And uh, thanks to him, we are, I mean, able to put a lot of our music in Western uh, notation. Otherwise, I don't know. I don't know what would happen. So, thank you. Um, yes. So we have Western notation in English from Chrysanthos of Maditos. Is chanting and singing the same thing? Yeah. Yeah. I think it's kind of a, I think you could even, I mean, a lot of times you might even call what the choir does chanting, too. Because we'll talk about this in two more weeks, but a lot of what the four-part harmonies that we do uh, in, our, in the choir <coughs> Have originally have come from this from this Byzantine chant and have been kind of worked over and um, made so that we can have harmony and um, so it's it's chant it's chant too I can say um, okay so some cool uh, actually before I do that I'll also talk quickly about uh, the the E zone. So the E zone is 
I guess you could say the only harmony that we have in chant. So it's this one note, the floor upon which the melody dances, and it underlies the melody. So it's that bass note of the melody. So for instance, um, today we did tone eight, and the bass note would have been knee. So if, um, so David, you want to hold that note? So it's this beautiful note that underlies the melody. And just as we see the Holy Spirit as underlies all creation, that's kind of the theology behind it, this beautiful idea that the you know, Holy Spirit, who we're present, filling all things. So it's kind of like the theology for the Esau. Um I think it's really, I think it's important. It does add a lot to the chant. And usually in uh, a lot of choirs, you'll have about one or two people doing the E-stone and like 10 people doing the melody. So it's very, it's not like half and half, but it's just like a couple people doing the E-stone. And then, so that way it's not overtaking, but it's just kind of the Holy Spirit's like in the background. So um, that's the E-stone. Yes. Is the e song typically uh, lower or higher than the melody? The e song is always lower than the is usually lower than the melody, or will be the same note. So the e song is usually that bass note. So in tone eight, like David was singing, it's this knee, and then tone eight is kind of floating all up and down here. And then if you want, when the chanter is going to go real high up the scale, the e song usually moves to another note when the chanter is going to go high. And so sometimes the e-stone can actually kind of control what the chanter does. Because if they start hitting that note, then the chanter knows that he's got to go high and uh, to kind of fill the e-stone. So the e-stone is usually one or two, is one or two notes. Kind of a low note and like a medium note, which will support the melody when the chanter is going high. So. Um, so yeah, uh, one of the, the ways that we learn Byzantine chant is to practice singing with just these um, syllables. So uh, like floating around the scale, ni ni, and very helpful, especially when if we get out um, uh, your, the music for the, yeah for the. Does anyone have? Is there an extra one of those? I should have got that. So, um, so this note. So if this is ni, ni pa vu ga di, then this would be the. So ni pa vu ga di ke zo ni. So quick exercise. If I point to a note, do you think you could say the note? Again, I would, it's ni, this is the lowest, ni pa vu ga di ke zo ni. So if you look on your on your sheets, 
what do you think the first note would be? Yep, the. So technically in the Greek, it's, there's no duh, it's the. So we would say the. Um, so this would look like the, ga, vu, ga, di, ga, di, di, ga, ga, di, ke. So this would be the way that if we were to like really practice this, then we would practice singing it by going over what these are, because we would know that ni is the bass note, ni So we would know that we would have to start, save, O Lord, thy people. Um, we'll just do this for a couple more minutes. Just want to tell you a couple more things about how someone would compose uh, a hymn. So there's two things really that you would want to look at, and that is the syllables of the word and the word meaning. So uh, for instance, when we would sing the great doxology, we wouldn't want to sing um, glory to thee who has shown, because the emphasis would be on glory to thee, because we'd say glory, not like glory. So we want to make sure that our syllables are right, and then also the meaning of the words. So we wouldn't want to sing like, uh, glory to thee who has shown us the light. We would want to say, glory to thee who has shown us the light, because the light is the big uh, emphasis of the sentence. So those are two things. And as you can see here, uh, I think they pretty much do that. And by the power of the cross, you see that the highest note comes from in the power of the cross. So. A lot of times hymnographers, or not hymnographers, but those who compose the music to go with the hymns follow those kind of two reference points. The syllables and the word, and the word meaning. OK. So um, when we do chant, you've probably heard David do this, we sing a little something to get us into the tone. That's called the apikima. And it's different for every tone. And the apikima is pretty much singing some of these syllables to help us get the scale. So tone one is the diatonic scale. And for tone one, to get into that tone, we would sing ni pa pa and pa pa is the bass note. And then we go from there and sing the chant because we know that we have this bass note set up. And we get the scale from singing this little apikima. So you, so you'd probably hear David often say, ni pa pa. And then the E stone would come in because that's the bass note. And then also, if we can't get the scale from that, we could go further and say, and that gives us the scale for. So that's what you hear a lot of times when, before a tone is started, and the chanters are trying to find the the right pitches. So um, there's a pikima for every for for every single tone. So that's tone one. I'm not going to go through all the tones, but. Um, the, I'll give you the chromatic, the 
tone now because that's a different scale. So if you were going to do tone six, which is the chromatic tone, different scale, you would sing Liga Vupa, Pa would be the bass note, and then you chant like that. And you would use that apikima to help you find the scale so that you can chant. So any questions? I know that's <laughs> a lot of things you probably. How do you spell apikima? Apikima? Say A P, probably E C H M A, something like that. It's a Greek word. It's a Greek word. Yeah. Yeah. Earlier, you would have more focus on these little melodies, and these, so that once you would understand these melodies, you could, you would understand the chant better from practicing these little melodic bits that are composed together to make uh, a hymn. Now, we don't use as much music, uh, so. The melodies we don't know as well, but back in the day there was music for everything. So even there still is music for everything, but we are kind of new to chant in this country. So we do a lot of freestyling. We see a paragraph and we make our own melodies up. So that's kind of the difference between now and then. But um, they would have practiced those little melodies a lot more. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, until uh, you could get away with it for a while until, uh, until we have these manuscripts and stuff like that where it starts getting really complicated. You probably would, you could get away with it just from listening, but if everyone is on the same page and we're singing as a choir, then it's, it would be easier to practice music. Sorry. So when I say choir, I mean usually chanters don't, that's usually not like a one-on-one. -on -one. Usually chanting is like six chanters, so it's a choir. So we call it a choir. So sorry for that. Yeah. So they would have you know, a piece of music, and they would all be able to look at it and sing it and be, uh, and be one. Okay. Yeah. So and, uh, but you may bring up a good point in that the music doesn't actually capture everything, because there is an oral tradition that has certain flutters and certain um, melodic kind of endings that aren't necessarily in the music, but it's just like a common thing. So for instance, when, when we sing this, Save, O Lord, thy people, and bless thine inheritance. Grant thou one. See, there's like a natural duh. That's like something that wouldn't be really in the music, but when you have a whole note like that, you, you hold it, you'd flutter. Or when thou unto the faithful. So it's like these small things that people just naturally pick up on, which you'd pick up on here. So, okay. So yeah, done with all the, the Byzantine chant uh, specifics. Hymnography. So like we said last week, first 
a lot of the chanting only consisted in singing the Psalter uh, or hymns from the Bible like, uh, like Lord now let us have a servant or uh, we have the doxology or oh glad some light. Those are kind of the three hymns that we see that are sung that are not uh, uh, scripture or uh, the Psalter. So this is due to a couple reasons. One, the fact that Gnostics and Arians were coming up with melodies and words to explain their own theology and entice people in. So there wasn't an urgency to do exactly what they were doing because this is what the heretics are doing. We want to separate ourselves from the heretics. We don't want to be a part uh, of this enticing. But that changes. Also, there is this uh, battling of the Marcionites, which is a heresy where they believe that the, old the God of the Old Testament is different than the God of the New Testament because there's so much, they believe it's so radically different from what we see uh, from the old and the new. So we want to focus on the Psalms, we focus on the Old Testament, that this is part of our faith and that this is something that is true and that uh, it's, you know, it's the same God. However, we see some hymnography uh, added on into the church because we kind of start to use the same, we retaliate with kind of their own, uh, what's the phrase, like we kind of give them a taste of their own medicine kind of thing. Right? So we start to use hymnology to explain kind of our theology and uh, something that we really see today. In fact, we just sang a hymn today, um, the both now and ever, uh, that we sang at Vespers had a lot, uh, it's called the dogmaticon, and that really means, I mean, dogma, you see that in the word, and that kind of goes to explain the dogma of the Trinity, um, the persons, uh, or the natures of Christ, and the persons of the Trinity, and also the Theotokos. So, uh, I can't remember, I could like kind of paraphrase what we kind of sang tonight, but it's, these, these hymns help explain the dogma of our church. So we, we still see that today. Um, uh, yeah, and that's kind of after the sixth century, we see uh, hymnography, and it becomes more and more prevalent as iconoclasm is defeated. Um, so what, let me ask you, why, what do you think iconoclasm, the defeat of iconoclasm would have to do with hymnography and with um, uh, like the the acceptance of hymnography. <laughs> What's that? <laughs> I didn't like the squirrel. <laughs> actually, there were. We probably have some many, a lot of manuscripts destroyed because of uh, iconography on those manuscripts, so they're destroyed during iconoclasm. But I think connection. There's definitely something to be said for connection. So with the defeat of iconoclasm, we're kind of affirming 
this incarnational theology, the fact that our God became man, we depict God, we use, we use matter and uh, with the icons, we use it to glorify God. This is also our kind of our priestly role. We offer to God what is uh, here on earth. This is kind of our own, our life, our ministry. So with hymnography, we offer, you know, these words, these uh, beautiful, look, the poetry, the beautiful representation of, um, not representation, but the beautiful description of the saints. And we use this and we all uh, glorify God with one voice and with one heart. So we're affirming this incarnational theology that, you know, matter is not this evil, terrible thing, but we use it to glorify God. God became man. So, okay. So, the Kentuckian. So, this is, comes in the 6th century, a long metrical poem, uh, also a sermon, kind of like a sermon to honor and magnify the saints, Theotokos, uh, in Christ. So it moves us to compunction and to action. It's something that is uh, very much shortened today in church. We sing the Kentuckian today um, right after usually the patron saint of the church during liturgy. And then the choir will usually sing the Kentuckian. Usually it's um, protection of Christians who cannot be put to shame. And that is just a little piece of the Kentuckian that we that was written uh, long, long ago. Just a little piece, um, but we'll get into that in a second. We see that um, originally this kind of poetic language comes from Syria with uh, Saint Ephraim the Syrian. Um, monastics, again, like we said before, didn't enjoy this so much because it was more of like a liturgical drama that they thought which was too secular for uh, the Christians so they didn't really adopt it and incorporate it in the worship uh, originally the Akathist to the mother of God that we sing on Fridays during Lent is one of the only full Kentuckian Kentuckia, that we sing uh, that we use today so that's really the only one that we really use in our, in our worship. And uh, the Kentakia that we sing during liturgy is, is just that first paragraph of this huge long piece like we do uh, for the Akathist for the Theotokos during Friday. So it's like way shorter. As Mickey says in his thesis about the Kentakian, it's like the tip of the iceberg that we, that we do. So, it's really shortened. And so it used to be read or chanted uh, after the gospel by the preacher at the pulpit. And the choir would sing the response, which would be like, rejoice, O unwedded bride. You know, we say that all the time during, our, uh, during the Akathis. So that would kind of be all of us, all of the church together with one voice singing this refrain um, after all of these stanzas. So. That's how it would have went in the early church. So the form, sorry, begins with a short prelude. So like I said, what we do usually on Sundays, right after the uh, triparian of the patron saint of the church. 
Um, after that kind of short paragraph, there are 18 to 24 stanzas, or um, the, the echoes, um, that has a refrain at the end of the echoes, which would be like we said, Halo Unwedded Bride. So these preludes, uh, sorry. Uh, okay, like we already said, yeah, the preludes are the short paragraphs that we sing um, on Sunday. Also, there's a Kentuckian at Matins that we sing right before the canon. Actually, we say it usually. We say this Kentuckian right before the canon, although the Kentuckian really should be after the sixth ode in the canon. But, um, uh, but we, we don't do that. Um, so, uh, almost done. So, many Kentakia written by Saint Romanus the Melodist. They proclaim, exalt the saints, mother of God and Christ, figures in the Old Testament in a very poetic, uplifting manner, with, also with compunction and a lot of rejoicing, dialogue, uh, such as dialogue between the Magi and the mother of God, which happens in the Kentakian for the Nativity which was sung at the royal banquet, Constantinople, on Christmas Day. And we get that, um, we'll talk about that in a second, where how St. Romanos wrote that Kentuckian. So here's just an example um, of an echoes from the Kentuckian of the Nativity. As she spoke such words in secret and entreated the one who knows what is hidden, she heard the Magi seeking the babe. At once the maiden cried, out, cried to them, Who are you? They answered her, and you, who are you, that you have borne such a child? Who is your father? Who is she who bore you, that you have become mother and nurse of a son without father? On seeing his star, we understood that there had appeared, and everyone would say, a little child God before the ages. So they would, we would all sing that uh, together. And if you, so that's a melody of that, how I ended it is kind of the melody that we do for the Kentuckian, um, that little short paragraph that we sing. On this day, the virgin give birth. Um, so St. Romanos, kind of one of the first to write uh, his, the Kentuckia, served as a deacon in the Church of the Resurrection in Beirut before coming to Constantinople <coughs> during the reign of Anastasius. Um, there is some tradition that, uh, tradition maybe with a, a small, very small T that talks about how he couldn't sing at all. And then, uh, then the virgin, uh, the fact that he couldn't sing at all before the virgin comes to him is kind of a more small tradition. Not really sure if that's true. But this, uh, this part, uh, I don't know, I think it's true. Virgin appeared to him in a dream on Christmas Eve gave him a scroll which he swallowed, and the poet arose from sleep, gave praise to God, went straight to church, mounting the pulpit, chanted the Kentuckian of the Nativity of Christ. So that's kind of what has come down to us uh, through tradition, and there's St. Romanos and uh, the Theotokos appearing to him. Um, so that's how we get the Kentuckian that we say, on this day the virgin gives birth. Thank you, St. Romanos. 85 Kentucky are contributed to St. Romanos. So if you think of how long the Akathis service is, 
that's one Kentuckian, and he wrote 85 of those. So uh, it's a lot. And uh, I think, yeah, that's a lot. So Saint, uh, Patriarch John X of Antioch says, his Kentucky are powerful, enthusiastic, and bring the saints alive and attractive to listeners uh, in a realistic way. And Kentuckian comes from the word meaning pole, contacts. Kentuckians, because Kentuckians were so long that they were rolled up on poles. So, fun fact, very long. Um, and that's uh, a couple more things. Uh, so, there is a book of Akathis, which we have now, and those. Um, for every, so there's a little short paragraph followed by uh, a stanza, and then you have another short paragraph followed by a long stanza, another short paragraph followed by a long stanza. Um, and that's how those akathis are set up, which is a little different from some of the kantakia um, by St. Romanos, which would have been uh, a little kind of short paragraph prelude, and then would have just had stasis, and then another stasis, another stasis, another stasis. So there's that. And then this Kentucky uh, kind of movement kind of fades out in the 7th century, probably um, because of this uh, increased monastic influence uh, on, the, on the worship of the, the, the cathedral worship or the worship of the, the people in the city. And also the Quintessext Council ruled that priests need to address laity directly in homilies, because this Kentucky would have kind of served as uh, a homily. So if, I think this just died, but I wanted to play. Oh, no, we're on. On this y'all. This is really late today. Sorry I kept you so late. Uh, next week we'll talk a little bit about the other hymns of the church and how they came to be and what they mean and how uh, we use them in worship. So God bless. Have a good week.